Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. That evening, as I was taking the watch, I heard in the distance a familiar sound of horror, the howl of a warg. First, it was just a single cry in the night, but soon it was joined by others. The whole company was roused. The clamour was coming from the forest of Framsburg itself. We realised then that the wargs must have intended to meet their orcish allies there, and though we had thwarted some part of their darksome plans, we were ourselves now in great danger. We must make for the North Board and leave at once, though it was still the heart of night. Each member of the company strove to do their part to speed us on their way, or else slow the progress of the wars. Hello, Callum. Hello, Josh. How are you? I'm feeling uh, very excited to record another episode of coming back after a hiatus. It has been something of a hiatus. Uh, we've both been exceptionally busy, but ready to dive back into RP discussion. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. And I was reading some more from Torwald's journal there, played by James, which has been such a great aid to coming back to this many years later and remember what we actually did and said. And he is recounting the moment we've left off in the last episode of the podcast where we left the company as they retreated from Framsburg or the city of the Eothed. And we're rejoining the second part of that adventure to say what happened next. Indeed, what did happen next? So where we left, last left off, we had left the city of Framsburg. We'd been through the process of looting a dungeon. Uh, that part of the adventure has kind of been achieved, but that was not the end of the quest. We needed to get back to Bjorn's Hall. That was the kind of the second part of our quest was to report to Bjorn what we'd found. And kind of baked into that is the fact that we, or at least one of us, needed to survive to get back to Bjorn's Hall to deliver the information. Otherwise, what we'd learned wouldn't be of any great value. Uh, so we were leaving Framsburg and there was some discussion because we knew that we were being pursued, or at least we strongly suspected we were being pursued. And there was some discussion about whether or not we were going to go to a nearby hideaway that Stuart's character Runin knew about, the uh, dwarf hidden dwarf house, and he confided in my character Theodric about whether we could go there or whether we would be better to head directly back to the ford where we'd had a, a combat encounter and then to Bjorn's Hall. And it was a really nice moment between the two of us because obviously the other players could see and listen to our discussion, but their characters weren't really privy to it. And it was quite a difficult decision for us because Theodric was kind of sort of the de facto leader because uh, Bjorn had sort of tasked him with this and kind of took responsibility to say, no, we shouldn't go there. Our mission is to return to Bjorn rather and rather than going into the unknown, which it would have been to go to the dwarf house, we would re retrace our steps, which was a longer journey, but we knew the way. Uh, and that was kind of the setup for this. And we quickly discovered or heard um, we were being pursued. And I think that kind of sets the scene for the next big chunk of this adventure. 
Mm. Yeah, Malbeth, who uh, Brendan was playing, was uh, really quite instrumental in this part because he, as uh, background, had a lot of knowledge of what wargs had been hunted by wargs in Ariador and had extensive knowledge. And so he was able to give information on the way that wargs would hunt and pursue. Really, um, the, the crux of this episode, we thought a great thing to discuss was something that Josh introduced me to when he um, did RPGs. And I think we, in our group, use quite a lot. And I, I think to really good effect is skill challenges. And so maybe before we dive into how that went in this adventure and what happened, maybe Josh, you could give us a bit of background on what a, what a skill challenge is for people that haven't come across them before, because they're not part of the core fifth edition D&D rules or an aim at all. No, they're not. And it's something that I, uh, another shout out to Matt Colville's um, running the game vodcast, which he does, which is how I learned a lot about it. Um, and he was the person who spoke about skill challenges that I first heard. And researching it, there's a lot of talk online, on Reddit, and a lot of forums of the being a good part of the game. They're not a core part of fifth edition rules. They were in fourth edition, which... I know a lot of people at the time are quite down on and in hindsight, people are looking back and there's actually a lot of elements of fourth edition that people are keen to bring back. People, you know, there's always discussion online about these things and often people are never very happy about things. But I think skill challenge is one thing that fourth edition got really right and which are very easy to port into fifth edition. And it's the idea of having a, a mechanic, um, a quite a mechanical uh, crunchy, heavy way of doing something that may or may not succeed. The game's obviously broken down kind of into the pillars of combat, which we know, which is very crunchy and dice-based and turn-based. Uh, Role-play, um, which is... Or social interactions, which are very free-form. Um, and then a bit of, in the core rules, um, exploration which AIM, as we've spoken about before, gets really right, uh, mechanically speaking. Skill challenges are kind of used when you're doing something um, which you wouldn't want to do turn by turn like combat because it's far too expansive for that, but which requires some success or failure. So the examples, um, the example that Matt Colville, I'll just, uh, everyone should watch his videos. They were excellent. The example he gives <laughs> is when people go into a dungeon, you want there to be a lot of exploration. When people are fleeing the dungeon, perhaps the dungeon is, you know, collapsing. Um, Everything collapses. Rocks fall. Exactly. Um, that's what quoting the bit when Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli are running in from the film in the, the, the bit of the dead, Dunharrow. And when does the, it say everything collapses? Well, in the uh, game, uh, Return of the King video game, I used to play a lot with my brother, which was brilliant. Check it out. Matt Kilville's running the game and also Lord of the Rings Return of the mm -hmm. King game. There's a scene where you like just defeat the King of the Dead and then you have to run out. And the, there's this like line of dialogue, which is just everything collapses. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's so stupid. Um, I love it. Uh... Let's let's let let that become part of our podcast now. Everything collapses, right? I need that. We need to rebrand everything. Um, where was I? Yes. So escaping from a dungeon, uh, or in this case, 
we're escaping a situation. When you're retracing your steps, perhaps you want to give it a different flavor rather than literally just doing what you've done to get into the dungeon in reverse. Maybe the dungeon's collapsing or the castle is on fire or you're being chased by something. You don't want to do turn by turn six seconds at a time, but you want to test the players and you want to do it with some degree of urgency. And this is a way of doing it mechanically. And what happens is the dungeon master will give a certain number of um, successes that are needed uh, on dice rolls to achieve what you're trying to do. And they should explain at the beginning what the sort of the parameters for success and failure are. So if it is that you are um, escaping a burning building, the successes that you get out safely and Perhaps the fail state of that would be that you actually don't get out the building and something else might happen. Um, and there can be kind of midway points of success and failure. Uh, the DM explains how many successes you need and what will happen if you succeed and that there is risk. And then the players take turns to make a um, skill check of their choice and narrate how that skill will help them in the situation. So it might be that you use athletics to, you know, break through a door which has started to crumble, or it might be that you use um, investigation to explore what the quickest route would be. Really, any skills can be used. And the way we've played it when we've both uh, run games is as long as the player can justify using a particular skill in a way that narratively makes sense, great, do it. There's a DC, which we normally, um, when we're running the game, explain what that DC is to meet. So the players kind of keep track of their successes and failures. And you keep going around until they either acquire the right number of successes or uh, the right number of, or the wrong number, I suppose it would be, of failures, at which point something else happens. I think one of the reasons it's not always universally popular is it does kind of require lifting the screen a bit because you do talk about the numbers. The DC, you explain what it is. You do track the numbers. It, it makes it a bit more gamey than some role-play things often are. But I think if, as the DM, you run it with a degree of urgency, it's really exciting. Like everyone wants to pitch in with ideas rather than sort of sitting around planning, which is fun, but groups are prone to doing for long periods mm. of time. They have to respond quickly and launch in with ideas. And then normally what we do, narrating it, is narrate it kind of like a sort of a montage. Like you can do it over a much longer period of time than a combat, potentially several minutes or even several hours. Or you could even do it over several days if you're if the challenge was like an exploration level thing. Um, I really like it. We've used it to good effect in different games. And I think the situation we have in front of us, which we can run through, is probably a great example of when to use it and how to do it. I've got a couple of things to add on to that. I think it, the the urgency aspect, because it is crunchy uh, and mechanical, I think it it makes it very clear. Like you do a check, you do the next step, you do a check. It like makes things progress, and it gives you something to base narrative on. Yeah. It's quite good to to have a player decide what check they make and describe what they're doing, and then you can describe failure or success with you know oh, well, you did an investigation check to try and get out of the burning building, but uh, the fire is too bright and you're too hot to actually make any headway of what's going on and your normally good vision is blurred by smoke or you know something like that. You can, you can narrate around that. 
And I think there's a, we'll maybe describe what we did, but then we can come on to the pros and cons of different ways of running a skills challenge. Another yeah. thing to say is we're, tonight we're playing Star Trek Adventures, which is by Modifius. Is that your Yes. Yeah, I think um, so. And in that, there's a mechanic called extended challenge, extended tasks, sorry, which is very similar. It's just weapons like another RPG. So should we describe what, how, what happened in this situation? So the party were aware they were being chased by wargs, woken up in the middle of the night, didn't get a proper rest, and were having to run. And we ran a skills challenge to simulate the flight away. And I think the success was if they succeeded, then they would have gotten to North Ford. And if they failed, then they would get caught up by the wargs. Yeah. I think Malbeth had explained in character that crossing the ford was probably enough to escape them. Um, that if we managed to do that before being caught, and then we were effectively in the land of the Bjornings, they probably wouldn't pursue us into those lands. That he described in character why that was the that was the point we needed to get to to kind of guarantee success. Yeah. The fail state of it was if we didn't get enough successes before we reached the number of failures, then we would be caught mm. basically. And this, the, the balance of successes and failure might affect how quickly we were caught or, or how serious that was. So there was six party members playing at this time. So a lot of people, and I think I've got my notes here from the, the journey sheet. So I think I wrote down that the C, DC was 15. They needed eight successes um, to finish. If they accumulated four failures and then they would be caught up with. Mm. And the other thing that I did in my head when I was planning this was I was thinking that, you know, say the first four roles are all failures, they would be caught up with quite early on in their journey because it was like a chase. I was thinking like the map between where they were and where they were going and the number of like when the failures happened, if they happened, then the number of the total checks that had been rolled at which point they failed would determine where in that journey the wargs caught. Yeah. That made sense. So I had to prep different maps for where they were. That's really interesting. Um, on, on this, I ran a skill challenge. I've done several, but when we've been playing Curse of Strad, which is the game that we kind of run in parallel, we had one, and I don't want to give any sort of spoilers because it's a module a lot of people play, but there was a situation where the characters were kind of racing some villains to a particular place. There was an emergency. They had to get there to achieve something, and they knew that some of the villains were also going there. So we ran it as a skill challenge. Um the way I had it was that you were always going to get there. Like you would it, it, feasibly, the challenge wasn't to get to the location, which was only about a mile away, like it, without any pressure of, of villains or jeopardy, you would have been able to get there. So you were always going to arrive, but the number of successes or failures was uh, how many of the villains were there when you arrived. So if you had totally succeeded, you would have outrun all of them. And what you wanted to do when you got there, which was rescue someone, would have been really easy. The more you'd failed, the more when you arrived, there would have been villains on the map and there would have been a combat. And if you had um, failed overall, you wouldn't have been able to achieve the end goal. So I think that's another uh, really worth thinking about in when you do skill challenges is how you can have different outcomes based on the balance of success and yeah. failure which again the players know and it means each role feels really important because even mm. if 
if you fail and you ultimately win overall, you still know that, oh, when I missed that athletics check to like get over that wall, that has cost us in the long run. So everything feels really mean meaningful. Yeah. So in, in our setting, um, I've written down that there was six different successes. They did a medicine check to try and patch everybody up. I think Eisenbard did some deception checks and he succeeded in that and did some false tracks and mm -hmm. maybe some laid some things that um, put the wargs off. Carhu did an investigation check looking for a different path, I believe, and Eisenbard also succeeded on an acrobatics check. But there was four failures, Malbeth failed on stealth. Uh, there was an intimidation check that was failed, I'm not sure who by. A survival check was failed and also a straight strength check. And it led to this like real interesting narrative reason because you know how else would you run this sort of chase i guess what other options are there for this setting like what because you know at the end of the game in any rpg you're using rules to abstract out something so that there is a chance of failure like how else would you run a chase I suppose in the most extreme sense, uh, and I don't advocate this at all, is that you, the DM, or the lawmaster, the LM in this case, could just decide whether we're going to get caught or not. Yes, um, that's one option. It, it would be DM fear, and it, I don't think players would find it very enjoyable because it would kind of be like, well, it's a bit inevitable what happens. So that's one extreme. Although, although to say, you know, if you're getting chased by, you know, maybe it's like D&D &D, and there's some incredibly fast creature... And there's no way yeah. that they can't escape. Then making someone to roll for that seems some arbitrary. But you have to be very clear that, like, when they set out to try and run, you'd be like, you can try and run, but maybe give them a check, and then they know, and like, oh, this creature is incredibly fast. There's no way you can outrun it. So the, I think there's still fine. some player agency, yeah. like, well, we're never going to be able to outrun it, so let's just prepare to fight here. Yes, absolutely, that's fine. And that is still grounded in the rules, because that is the, the creature that's chasing. Is, is fundamentally is faster. So if they don't do anything, they will get caught. The um, Dungeons Master Guide for the, the core rules does have stuff about chases in it, um, it mechanically, which works with a series of effectively constitution checks mm. to see if you can maintain a chase. Now, we've used that as well. I think that works in a when you're doing a combat and someone runs away from the combat. So you're yeah. in a turn-based situation and they're trying to get chase. away. We should talk about that some other time. So that works then, I think, but I don't think it would work in this situation to zoom into that level of quite granular rules where you take six second turns and roll constitution yeah. checks to see if you can basically keep running. Wouldn't have worked with this because uh, this was effectively an entire I think about a day's worth of travel that we were doing. Yeah. So we weren't like sprinting. We were trying to move quickly over a long period of time, which meant that, yeah, I, I think doing constitution checks wouldn't quite have made sense. I imagine that. it's similar to this, you know, the part where Legolas, Gimli and Aragorn, the free hunters are chasing down yes. the Urukai, trying to get retrieve the hobbits. You know, that's the example there. And, you know, if we did a skill challenge there, you know, Aragon puts his ear to the ground. You know, there's something in uh, skill challenges. Is this right in in fourth edition where, like, if you use a spell slot, you can automatically succeed, or yes. is that something now, that you've added in? What, what I have to say is, I my knowledge of skill challenges comes through not reading fourth edition rules, but from other people who have used oh, right. fourth edition rules and fifth edition. And a common rule, which Matt Colville talks about, and other people do as well, is if you use a spell slot, so not cantrip. If you spend a spell slot, 
uh, in other words, a resource, you can guarantee a success as long as the spell makes sense in the situation. Like you, mm. you need to use a spell that makes sense. So I think it can be up to the people running the game to say, if you're going to spend a resource, now there aren't really spells in uh, Adventures Middle Earth, but a lot of characters do have, you know, one or two use abilities. If someone's going to use one of those, you could say you can use it, but and that will guarantee you one of your successes because the flip yeah, side is they I have like spent a resource. So Aragon uses his um what's it called again? Years of the Rumors of the Earth, Earth, I think it is. Yeah, so you, Aragon uses that, maybe that automatically guarantees him success. Legolas uses a perception check. What do your elf eye see? And it succeeds on that. I think the other thing which is worth mentioning, which I think is why skill challenges are a great way of doing a chase or similar kind of montage type situations is the game is most fun for players when they get to do the things they're good at. Like mm. we've talked about this a lot, but you want to reward people for doing the things they're good at and they should be able to enjoy it. And with a skill challenge, it's up to the player to suggest the skill they're going to use, which allows players to try and be like, well, I'm looking at my character sheet. You know, as Theodric, I was a scholar. I wasn't particularly athletic or anything. Like, just running didn't make sense. But I was really good at medicine. So I thought it came around to I was going to be able to pick something. Medicine. How, how am I going to be able to use medicine in a chase situation? And I thought, well, we've had a tough combat maybe on the fly I can do some sort of triaging and bandaging people up and giving them herbs and figuring out, you know, how well people are doing. And I rolled well, and you allowed that as an example. Um, Car, who, for instance, as a slayer and a strong Bjorning, he would want to be using athletics or strength to... to and it, it, it lets people have a moment in the spotlight doing the things they're good at, mostly. It's, it's great. Thinking of other examples, so how, how else could you run it? So you've got a skills challenge, the DM could just decide. One other thing I think is worth mentioning is a detractor for skill challenges, which sometimes I've I felt more as a player, is that you have to be careful that if you abstract things out too much, do you remove some of the abilities that player characters have? Now, in yep. AIM, this might not be as relevant, but sometimes in in D and D, so say you've got a character who you know has a, a higher move speed or has some ability that allows them to do something quicker or you know has a ridiculous strength, and then if you abstract it down to a skill challenge, you don't want the player to be left thinking, yeah, oh well, if this had been done more mechanically, like you know round by round, and I definitely would have succeeded. I think that's very fair, and that is the. The kind of the, the downside of porting something from uh, a different edition of something, which is not intended to be used. And there are some great homebrew uh, examples on Reddit, and Matt Colville's video goes into great detail, but it, they're not perfect. And there will be situations like that where actually, if you'd run it as a very long combat turn by turn, mechanically, it would have been optimal for all the players but it maybe wouldn't have been as exhilarating because yeah. it would have taken a lot longer. Yeah, so. so you have to balance that, you know, like absolute realism or as much as you can get from the game system with actually you want the story to move along and not get people bored and have, you know, that sort of rapid decision. And I think players, you just need to buy into that yeah. and and agree to, to abide by things will go wrong sometimes. And that's part of the joy of the game because what, what happened is, so we had the skills challenge, there were six successes, but then you got to four failures and you failed. Uh, in inverted commas, you know, 
uh, so the wars caught up and yeah yeah you also did a really good job of like we didn't just roll dice and there was no narrative you did a really good job with each dice roll both describing the success or failure of the roll but then kind of zooming out a bit to sort of say if we were failing like we could hear them coming closer or if we were succeeding the feeling that maybe we were losing them and it meant when we got to the point where we accumulated four failures we really had the sense they were right behind us and they caught up with us. And that was really good. They felt like there was this um, real time pressure coming with it. Yeah, I think leading up to this, one of the checks, or maybe it was an ability, had led to you finding like the shortcut, mm. the hidden path. Maybe it was the investigation check. And so you were off this like slight angle off the main road. And then I described the narrative as, you know, you were they were right on your heels and they were you know you come out this forested area and you saw these cliffs ahead of you and there was this narrow pass that went up and there was cliffs on either side so it was a sort of choke point and then with the lights from your torches you could see just behind you this pack of wargs emerging from the forest and then that was where we ended the session it was a sort of cliffhanger ending and then the, the whatsapp group from for the next <laughs> week was like you know all these plans are coming out and we abstracted that out to saying that you know you would have on the journey been planning yeah. how you would have dealt with them if they had caught up with you how did that feel uh, that moment as a player so i think it was you know I, i'd certainly described these wargs and you, you were quite you know the, the the party had been through some combats and weren't yep. at full strength uh, it was one of the most memorable parts of the game was that week between sessions because I think we you had very successfully built up in narrating the situation, the stakes. You know, we were fleeing from uh, enemies. And the reason we were fleeing was we got the sense from the way Malbeth had described them that there was no way that, you know, we would be able to take on a pack of wargs, particularly when we were injured. And there was urgency that we had to deliver this information home. So the stakes were high doing the skill challenge and i think this is a real strength of this keeps the stakes high it feels like you're moving forward whether you're sort of failing forward or succeeding forward it still feels like you're moving forward which i think is really important you're moving towards something changing we were really quite nervous and i remember the energy of us rolling like we were looking around and people diving in with what they could do in suggestions and there was a bit of a little bit of tension as people kind of like, no, we should do this, we should do that, which all of which we could imagine us on this this tense journey having. You stopped at a perfect moment for the story as a cliffhanger. Uh, I think it probably was a perfect moment for you as the DM. I've been there as well. When you think, I actually need to prep quite a lot. <laughs> yes. So, oh, let's have a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, literally um, a cliffhanger because there was a cliff involved. I think I'm often in two minds about stopping right before combat because I sometimes think if you do, and then you have a week or however long between your sessions, it gives the players a chance to like really plan optimally what they want to do, which can be fun, but I think sometimes removes some of the energy of like in the moment, you don't necessarily make the most optimal decision, but you maybe make a decision that makes sense to your character. So sometimes I'm a bit on the fence. Mm. What you did well was you did narrate up to the point where we've been caught, but you didn't really give too much detail about like exactly where we were on a map or exactly how many enemies there were. So we couldn't we couldn't plan specifically like, oh, you know, I'm going to move exactly 20 feet in this direction and then do exactly this. We just had the sense that what the terrain was like, 
roughly how many enemies there were, what resources we had. And yeah, that week in our in our WhatsApp group chat was just like panicked questions and thoughts like, what can we do? Can we do this? What's the best plan? I really enjoyed it. I also enjoyed it because you were obviously in the chat and you were, I know you were prepping the combat at the same time. So it probably helped your your sense of prep, getting a sense of what we wanted to do. But yeah, it was a real cliffhanger and I was so excited. I, I thought we were all just going to die. I thought there's no way we're going to overcome the situation. Mm. In my head, it'd been built up to, you know, this is just going to be this it tragic last stand. It could have gone a lot worse, the combat. Um, I think there's a whole discussion in there about like terrain in combat and yes. what's given in the Lore Master's Guide and cliffs narrow choke points and how that really is the core of combat and difficulty in this game yes in a way that isn't in other games where you can fly or yes you know have crazy abilities in aim if you want combat to be interesting you need like a ford or some rocks or a bog or some fog or a forest or a trying to make it rhyme i I lost (laughs) you're totally right you're totally right because so many in um, uh, a more high magic or high fantasy setting, so many of the sort of spells and abilities are actually considered to be like area of effect and battlefield control. So it's actually about reshaping the battlefield with with spells, changing terrain, or creating magical effects, which changes the dynamic of the battlefield. Because those abilities don't really exist in AIM, I think the opportunity is for the lawmaster to actually create terrain that forces the players to make decisions about like, oh, well, that's difficult terrain, so it's going to take me twice as long to go that way than it is to go this way. Maybe this way is more dangerous, actually. Yeah, there's cover here. Yeah, there's this you're, you're presenting the players with interesting decisions. Yes. And that's what's good. But I think, actually, before we go too far into that, I think that that is like an hour's discussion in itself. I think you're right. <laughs> and there's so many different bits and tips and like how it runs. Coming slightly back to the skills challenge, there's something that popped into my head was... Yes. Uh, Particularly for AIM, when you're on a journey and you're using a skills ch- um, uh, check, which sometimes I've planned, sometimes I've, I've thrown it together. You know, you don't need really any prep for a skills no. check, challenge. It's quite an easy thing to throw in. And one recommendation I would have, and this is what I've done, is that you, when you plan a journey, you set a journey DC based on the terrain and, you know, where you're moving through, if it's winter or not, et cetera, et cetera. That's what. That's always the DC I use for the skills challenge. Oh, great! That's really good. Makes it really easy, and I think that you know you said about being very open with how you're running it, and you know there's there's some discussion about that in games where you say if you're open with how the rules and mechanics work, it make it very clear because you are abstracting something, but at the same time it can detract the narrative. So I'm not like entirely decided one way or the other about you know do you share the DC for these sort of things. Um, do you, you always say definitely whether it succeeded or failures, particularly if <laughs> the players wouldn't know? Like, you know, if you set like a deception or or some other thing to try and, you know, throw them off, you as a, as a character wouldn't necessarily know if that has succeeded or failed. Um, That's really interesting, yeah. I'd so, never thought, yeah. I, I, I quite like doing, in terms of whether the DC is public or not, I really don't have a strong view um, one way or another. Although, much like armor class, I suppose if you hide it from the players, but you do tell them whether it's success or failure, they will over time be able to figure out yeah. what the DC is. And you don't really want them to all be sitting there just constantly trying to figure out what the DC or the armor class is. 
But the flip side to that is if you just tell people, oh, you meet a knight, their armor class is 18. You know, <laughs> what? So that kind of ruins immersion. So there's a bit there's a bit there. And also there's some abilities that will only trigger. Like if you fail, you can add this dice to, yeah. or, you know, in this game, there's lots of extra dices you can get, like command dice, it's fellowship. You know, there's lots of ways you can get extra dice to add on to ability checks. So... Yeah, I I don't know. I'm not sh- I'm not certain. And I I think I've run it both ways. You know, some most of the time I would say I'm quite open with it, but I have I think sometimes run skill challenges where I have been a bit closed with exactly whether you're succeeding or failing. I think in the the most recent game did I run one like that? You did. I actually think it worked really well. Um something I've always done when going into a skill challenge is saying to the players I now intend to move this into a skill challenge. Mm, yeah. And because what you mentioned before, that some players maybe have an ability or maybe are thinking ahead, like I'm going to do something. You don't want to force them into like a slightly different mode of, it's almost a sort of mini game. You don't want to force them into that if they had another plan. So I like to say, my intention is to do this. And then there's a moment where if they want to either ask yeah. a question or say, actually, you know, I, I'd like to continue in what we're doing because actually I have a thing I want to do. Um, and the same, I think you could say, you could say, I intend to, for whatever reason, keep some of the numbers actually secret this time. I think if all the players are like, yeah, that sounds great fun, do it. And there's a chance for, you know, maybe yeah, you have to, to have flag that dialogue and get everybody yeah. on board. It, it, it raises the tension if they don't know, but then it can make the mechanics a bit difficult and they can, you can let, you don't want your players to feel frustrated. You want, you want good vibes. Yes. You do want good vibes. Even if they're failing, you don't want them to be, you want them to it feel transparent, like not frustrated about the failure. Like, oh, I didn't understand. Like, mm. There's nothing worse as a player if you fail something because you didn't understand or you misunderstood. Yeah, if, because... if I'd known it was going to be that difficult, then I would have used this extra ability or yeah. dice or, you know, if I knew the DC was 20 now, I would use your spell slot to yeah, succeed exactly. because I was never going to get a 20 on this dice. So that, that that's, I guess, skill challenges. In AIM, I think they really work well with the journey rules and abstracting yes. up some of the bits where there's challenges. And I would really recommend giving it a go. I'm sure there's lots of guides. Matt Covell's guide, really helpful. I would really um, recommend watching the video. Coming back to our game here. So caught up by the wargs, um, you're at a narrow cliff edge. Maybe we should just run through quickly what happened and what happened after that. Yeah, absolutely. So we were caught sort of at the edge of a sort of wooded area. And then there was a sort of a gully with cliffs, well, not cliffs, like rocky areas on each side. And there was this narrow path. And the chat we'd had over the week had kind of been, and we had torches and it was night. And we already knew from our experience that wargs uh, didn't like fire and that there were mechanics around basically using fire to give them disadvantage if they attacked. So we knew the importance of that. Another good example of using a, a kind of an environmental effect. And so I think what we decided was we were going to kind of get ourselves into the narrow gully with torches at the front to basically prevent the wargs from surrounding us and that some of us would uh, try and use ranged weapons um, while we fended them off. And I think a couple of us, and we discussed this afterwards, had, although we didn't discuss it as a group, had decided if things went badly, they were prepared to sacrifice themselves to let the rest of the group get away. 
on the basis that it was important that at least someone got away. I certainly know that as Theodric, I was prepared to do something if it needed to be done where I would sacrifice myself and the others would get away. I think um, Scott as Carhu felt much the same. At that point in the game, his character was had a sense of being sort of doomed to die and was willing to kind of sacrifice themselves. So I think quite a few people were thinking, like, if it goes really badly <laughs> and I need to pull the emergency ripcord, what I'm going to do is I'm going to you know, charge into the box. Yeah. The battle started, and I remember quite quickly something that you did, which was great, which kind of changed the dynamic, was that the wargs kind of climbed up the, the rocky slopes, like they basically jumped up, which we, I think, had just... Maybe this is something about planning, is we'd almost just been like, well, that's not going to happen, and had kind of ignored it. And as soon as it happened, we were like, well, that, that seemed inevitable. Like these, these huge athletic creatures jumped up these rocky escarpments and surrounded us. And that quickly changed the dynamic. Um, we did get away, I think, through good planning and the use of the torches. We managed to survive. And we fled to the Ford, which at that point was not that far, if I remember. Yeah. I think yeah, we nearly you... got there at daybreak or something. Yeah, you weren't you weren't that many successes away from completing the skills challenge. I thought you had been got, got pretty close to. Um, um, and we got there and... Uh, it was still an eventful moment at the ford, which happened. Yes, there was. They when they'd come across the ford the first time, they fought some what were labelled as bandits, and I think one of the people there had survived. And they had this this interesting interaction with this man who had been left behind. They'd killed all his uh, compatriots and were trying to talk him down. And Phaedric, in particular, spent a lot of time trying to convince this person, like, "Look, there's a bigger threat coming. The wargs are coming. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill us." We need to get across this ford. Couldn't be talked down. And so there was this sort of, you know, you know, do we try and stave this guy? Do we talk to him? Do we fight him? There was a real sort of conundrum there. And eventually I think you just decided like car who just fought him and everyone else got across the ford. And um it was quite tense because the wargs arrived, there was a chase across the ford, getting across the ford. Yeah. Again, terrain. So there was mechanics about that in terms of like having to take strength checks to get across. If you failed, you might get swept away. And then the wargs were coming across, and that was a sort of defensible position, you know, holding barricades, shooting arrows. And then a lot of the wargs hadn't been killed. I think what had happened was that you'd set up a barricade in the in that um, narrow escarpment with fire, yeah. and um, some a lot of the wargs. I had tried to climb up the cliffs and roll terribly on all the checks and they kept falling <laughs> and injuring themselves. So they'd gone around a different way, eventually the wargs. Uh, so yeah, it was quite, it was quite a difficult combat for, for, for you all, I think. It was, and it was interesting doing combat on the same map we'd used. We've already talked about how good the, the Ford map was having mm. sort of environmental effects. It was fun then doing that in reverse because we needed to get back across the Ford and fighting different types of enemies with a different plan. And I think it was great because for you, you could use the resource you already had. For us, it was a totally different battle, even though it was in exactly the same location, and that was really fun. And it was also fun that it felt like our successes and failures in the skill challenge, and then our uh, plan in the 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 gully fight, all of that contributed to how many wargs we fought at the ford, how injured they were, which turn they arrived on, how injured we were. It felt like the situation we were in was entirely of our own making. Um, 
for good and bad, like some things were good and some things were bad. Some things I thought, I wish we'd done this differently. But that's always a good thing, I think. I think it, it means that all the decisions have have value and are, are meaningful. Yes, I really enjoyed that part of the combat. The end of it was that there was this uh, larger war werewolf um, creature who came and attacked and it looked certain that everyone was going to die. I think. In fact, I'm pretty sure one of the characters got on the pony and fled in order yeah. that someone would survive. Yeah. Um, and then at that point, uh, well, what happened? Do you remember? I do remember. Um, at that point, Bjorn arrived in his bear form. Uh, and there was this kind of titanic, like almost like kaiju clash between this werewolf and Bjorn, which we, although we were on the battlefield, we didn't really participate in. And you narrated these two beings who were obviously much more powerful than we were fighting each other. Uh, and it was awesome. It was really dramatic. And it was a really dramatic way for, I think, slightly lower level characters to experience incredibly powerful NPCs and monsters because they weren't directly fighting them. They were sort of fighting almost like minions while the bigger battle was going on. And that was really cool. Mm. Yeah, I can't remember how I, I ran that exactly, but uh, I had the stat blocks, both of them. Um, and again, part of a a small part of a larger discussion here in terms of how you use these big NPCs. You know, if you're on an adventure of Gandalf and you get into combat, there's not rules for, for Gandalf in the, in the lore master's guide or anywhere else. So one of the things I've done is like spent quite a lot of time thinking about Gandalf and building a character sheet for him, because to me, you want these, I think, you know, I get the guess the game is set up as you're an adventuring party and you go off and you do an adventure and you don't really have that much involvement with them. But I quite like the idea of like eventually maybe this hasn't happened yet, but you know, well, Bjorn turns up here. There is a stat block for Bjorn in the uh, rule books, but having them turn up and like, although they're really powerful, having them grounded in the same rules that you're using yeah, can make it feel like I, you don't wanted them to turn up and be like, well, Gandalf turns up and then he just does this thing. And then you're like, oh, sorry, how is that working mechanically? Or how does this interact with this other thing? So yeah, that's that's my personal view on it. Is, is doing. It's also just fun to make character sheets and I think building... Maybe we can talk about the Gandalf that I built at some point. Um, how I like read through the books and like all the stuff about him and what, what things he uses in the game and then use that to decide what spells to give him, etc. It's a great thing. I think you shared it with me ages ago. We must dig out and we could talk about it for an episode. And it was an article from Dungeon Magazine, I think, from like years ago and someone had written a letter in to say Gandalf is not a wizard he is a fighter in terms of D&D classes and had written this really long thing to explain why Gandalf isn't a wizard even though nowadays we think of Gandalf as like the archetypal wizard and it was really fun as a kind of like contrarian piece and I think you and I talked about it like oh actually maybe Gandalf isn't a wizard and he could be this so maybe that's we've just brainstormed an episode on the fly maybe we should do an episode and start with that article and then talk about yes. which class yes, Gandalf could be. Yes, that would be so be. fun. I, um, yeah. The other thing that I would recommend for, for building in PCs and, and so on is uh, the uh, Middle-Earth Strategy Battle Game. I often use that yes. when I'm building these. And I think we're going to have uh, a, another a discussion with Brendan, who played Malbeth, about building uh, enemy stat blocks. And I know that he's he we play that game together, so I think he uses that sometimes as well for inspiration on how mechanical things you can use. So you know, just drawing on different 
different areas. I love it. We've covered a lot of ground there, particularly skill challenges, which I couldn't recommend highly enough. And I think this was a great, the flight to the Ford was a great example of it in action. Uh, I think it, it was the uh, precisely the right time to use it. It went it went well in terms of the game went well, even though we didn't succeed at it. And it led to some great moments, which we felt really invested. In. So um, I would thoroughly recommend introducing skill challenges in some form, like, you know, pick and choose bits of it. And I would suggest checking them out online, read the fourth edition rules, watch Matt Colville's video and see which bits might work for your game. But I think they work really well in Adventures of Middle-earth. Yes. And that's as completed... I think probably the for us one of the most memorable journey you know it's an all-encompassing adventure so city of the earthhead framsburg which is quite a you know it's a small segment in the book and i think this talks to what the books are great for which is they have like a lot of really detailed description about you know, different parts of Middle Earth, different locations, which are really exciting, which you then can latch on to and say, mm-hmm. I'm going to build a venture around that bit there. Yeah. Uh, and But also it gives you, you know, as we were going through that journey, we haven't really talked about that. There was like description of the wildlife or the terrain that you were seeing, which I try and when I can, I have that book open and then I pepper that in yeah. as we go along so that the world feels rich and alive. And actually, there's other parts of what they were traveling through, which is the West Upper Vales of the Anduin Vale. And they've come back to that since, and there's other bits that are going on. So we'll be coming back to that location in the future. But uh, I think that just about wraps up that that journey. It does indeed. It's good to get back to the podcast, and it's good to get back to thinking about uh, the mechanics behind games. And we're lucky because we are, after this, off to play an entirely different role-playing game. We're off to play the Star Trek role-playing game. Uh, Brendan is going to run a game, and I'm very excited about it. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to going to see a Star War. No emails except on party business. And comments, suggestions, and questions to thefellowshipphase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken, and we will return. On the next episode of The Fellowship Phase.